Welcome inside the Hill City Highlights podcast, a podcast about the people of Lynchburg for the people of Lynchburg. Now, here's your host, Alan York. Welcome back inside our Hill City Highlights podcast, episode 14. It's amazing the run that we've been on here each week since maybe uh, early July, but we have a, have a fun time uh, bringing you stories and introducing those folks uh, that make Lynchburg uh, what it is. And today, a real special uh, episode, we're going to be joined by Greg Warmser, and uh, he, he goes by Tex uh, to those that know him really well. We'll get into that coming up. Uh, here in just a little bit, but uh, Greg is the fire chief uh, in Lynchburg for the city of Lynchburg, and uh, a lot of people work under Greg, and uh, we're going to get to know Greg a little bit and find out about his story and and what uh, makes his service to this community uh, so important, and full disclosure for those tuning in, I met Greg a couple of weeks ago doing this podcast with a good friend of ours, Josh Hall. Uh, who we all know played Major League Baseball and uh, met Greg in Josh's office and said, you know what, I think you'd be a great uh, person to have on the podcast here. And uh, and here we are, Greg, uh, here with uh, the temperatures hovering uh, just barely around 40 degrees. Um, but uh, that being said, I appreciate you coming on here. Do want to start here, Greg, with uh, where you were from, where you grew up, and uh, then we'll kind of dive into more of your story after that. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks, Alan, for having me. Um, I, I grew up in Texas. Uh, San Antonio is where I was born and raised. Um, and I moved here uh, in 1990 to go to school at Lynchburg College, what is now known you know, by many people as the University of Lynchburg. Um, so I was a transplant. Um, and, and back then, um, the Walmart on Wards Road wasn't a super Walmart. Uh, the mall had uh, had just been sort of redeveloped. Um, and there was there was not a lot going on in the city, um, a lot of open space. Um, and over the years, I've seen some tremendous growth. Um, and, uh, you know, back then, when I decided to start staying here um, in, I guess, 1993, um, people thought I was crazy. They're like, you're staying where? Why are you staying there? There's nothing happening there. There's a, it, but but I just I fell in love with the area. Um, and frankly, didn't want to drive all the way back to Texas. I got tired of driving two days straight to get back to home. Um, you know, when I'd go for the holidays or, uh, you know, or summertime. So I just decided in the summer of 93 to stay here and, uh, and, and never left. So super excited to be part of the community. I would imagine, uh, Greg, there are a lot of people from Texas that might have the nickname Tex, uh, for you, how'd that come about? So when I went to Lynchburg College, I was the at the time that I started at Lynchburg College, I was the only student there um, from Texas. And so immediately everybody um, in the dorm where I lived in the hall that I lived on started calling me Tex. Um, You know, they were all from the Northeast, you know, many of them from places like Connecticut, New Jersey, New York. Um, and even f- farther reacher, r- reaches. Um, but it was so rare at that time for somebody to be at Lynchburg College that really wasn't uh, wet, that was west of the Mississippi. And so um, they started calling me Tex um, and, and it just stuck uh, for for many, many, many years. And up until recently, um, you know, you, it was even on my byline, you know, on my signature line in my email. And my wife said, hey, you know, 
I think you graduated from that. You might want to take that off of your email, your email signature. And I said, okay. I said, you're probably right. Um, but it was, you know, back then when I started working at the fire department, um, people would call the station or like my mom would call the station and, you know, from Texas to check in on me. And, uh, she would ask for Greg and everybody at work would say, Greg, we don't, we don't have a Greg that works here. I mean, most everybody thought my first name when I started working here was Tex, just because that's all they'd ever heard. Um, and so that was, uh, that's always a funny story to tell that you know, people would be like, no, there's no Greg here. Sorry. You must have the wrong number. Hang up. She'd call back. Uh, it's text. They're like, oh yeah, he's right over here. Hang on. Let me get him for you. So, um, so <laughs> yeah, it, that's it, a great story. I, uh, call me that. So, okay. Uh, that's really funny. Uh, I went to Guilford college, which is, uh, a rival of Lynchburg's in the ODAC. Yep. I played football and baseball there. And Guilford was the exact same way. Uh, a lot of uh, northeastern kids would come down to Guilford to go to school. So Lynchburg and uh, Guilford, very similar. And they called me AY for my initials. And so nobody ever really called me Alan. And when I heard it, it just sounds very foreign when I was in college. So uh, <laughs> really similar stories. Um, joined by Greg Wormser, the fire chief here in Lynchburg. And We'll obviously get into that in a little bit. I'm curious, Greg, back to going, being from San Antonio, coming to Lynchburg. Uh, what is that story and why Lynchburg College uh, for you uh, and your undergrad? Uh, yeah, so my family, my, my mother, um, her parents lived in Alexandria. So in the, uh, which is of course in Northern Virginia. So in the summers back then we, we were, we didn't have a lot of money. So, you know, vacations for me weren't going somewhere other than to go see my grandparents because it was an easy flight. Um, they'd put me on a pay for a plane ticket and I'd go stay with my grandparents in Alexandria for a couple of weeks. I was sort of that was a vacation. Um, and so we had originally thought at some point um, that we would relocate to Virginia somewhere um, to be closer to, you know, my mom's parents. That never turned out. So she still lives in Texas today. Um, and, uh, so, you know, I decided to stay, um, and, uh, you know, that's sort of how the story goes. So when I came to, uh, when I applied to schools in Virginia, I applied to Virginia tech, I applied to Lynchburg college, uh, Virginia Commonwealth university, uh, Emory and Henry. And the, uh, I got accepted into everywhere, but Virginia tech, they probably thought I was crazy. Cause back then at Virginia tech, uh, you absolutely uh, struggled to get in if you were from out of state. Um, of course, that you know times have changed dramatically. Got in everywhere else, and, and really, when I came to Lynchburg the first time, um, I'll be honest, I, I I just felt like I was at home. Um, it was uh, you know even though it was such a stark contrast from where I lived, you know San Antonio's you know the sixth or seventh largest city in the United States at the time, um, it, it just felt like I was at home. Um, you know, everything felt warm and comfortable. The people were incredibly friendly. Um, and, and really, I think that's that's what I fell in love with initially. Uh, when I walked on the campus, I just felt like I was I was where I was supposed to be. I was where the universe needed me to be and, and wanted me to be for some reason. So um, it just seemed so natural. Uh, and that's really where it all started. Uh, joined by Greg Wormser, the fire chief uh, in Lynchburg. Uh, looking at your bio here, Greg, uh, graduated in 1995 from Lynchburg and hired 
by the fire department. How did that story go down? And, you know, growing up or, you know, going through high school, people asking you, Greg, what do you want to be when you grow up? What were those answers then? And what was the story between uh, that and getting hired by the fire department? Well, I originally wanted to be a veterinarian. Okay. Um, so I just, I love animals. Um, I've got three dogs and a cat now, um, and two kids who are like animals. No, I'm just kidding. Um, but, uh, but, you know, originally I wanted to be a veterinarian and what I learned at Lynchburg college was about community, um, and about helping others. So I didn't have any exposure or experience to that, um, in San Antonio. It's just such a large place. Um, you, you know, getting exposed to those types of community initiatives and things that are happening in in the city are, are, are challenging, frankly. Um, and so I don't know that I had a plan um, other than my mom wanted me to go to school. I knew the value of going to school and understood that value and needed to graduate. Well, so I wanted to be a veterinarian. That quickly changed to I just liked science in general um, to then I was exposed to so many people that again, lived in the Northeast who volunteered in some way, whether they volunteered at a rescue squad or they volunteered at some sort of, you know, Habitat for Humanity, Mules on Wheels, any, any of those sorts of uh, community service events. And that's what got me interested in serving. Um, you know, that exposure, the things that I was doing on the campus um, at the college, um, all those things that I had never been really exposed to um, is what caused me to fall in love with giving back, uh, being community minded, being servant minded and wanting to, you know, wanting to be something, wanting to be part of something and, and part of a, a, a bigger something and, and part of the community. So I started volunteering in a number of places in the community, at the college, started working at the college uh, when I was going to school there. And then ultimately um, started volunteering at one of the local rescue squads uh, because it just seemed like a cool idea. Um <laughs> A couple of my buddies that were from Connecticut, I'd been to their homes and saw where they volunteered, you know, their local rescue squad. And that's kind of how I fell in love with 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 the service and with giving back um, and and knew when I graduated that I didn't want to go back to school. All, all I wanted to do was work um, and, and get a job and be successful. So um, and then subsequently, I've been back to school twice. Um because I really didn't have anything else to do. So, so, um, so yeah, that's sort of really how it happened and how I decided to stay here. Um, in addition to that long drive to Texas. Joined by Greg Warms or the fire chief in Lynchburg. What do you remember about, okay. You mentioned Greg, uh, volunteering at rescue squads. Is there a, a time where they let you go out for the first time on a, a particular service truck, et cetera, and trying to ask this in a like respectful way, like it's a scary time for those people involved in whatever's happening to them. But at the same time, there has to be an adrenaline rush uh, to go out and help. It Was there uh, a call or something that sticks out to you early in your career that you uh, will remember just because it was kind of the first time you got to do it? You know, I don't know that there was there's a specific call that sticks out to me like this is the call. This is the deal. I, I certainly remember some some um, poignant times, um, you know, the first time I saw somebody, you know, who was dead, for example, um, never had any exposure to that. Uh, the first time I was able to save a life, um, you know, so I remember some of those things for sure that and, and they do matter. Um, I think for me. Um, 
initially, I don't know that I understood the adrenaline rush, although I certainly get that now because I still want to go on calls. I still like going on calls. So part of what I uh, believe in as the fire chief is that I should also be doing what what I ask others to do. And so, you know, I, I run calls regularly and, and still go to fire stations and, and whatnot because ultimately I feel like I, what I have is a gift of some sort that I can give back to somebody um, in their time of need. So for me, it wasn't necessarily the rush of going to the call. It was the fact that I could fix something. I had some sort of talent, even though I didn't have all the training yet, I had some sort of talent to make a connection to somebody and, and then fix their issue or help them in their time of need. And I think that's, I mean, that's really what still drives me today. You know, I love going to the fire stations. I love interacting with our, our staff. Um, but one of the coolest things that I still get to do um, is interact with the public at some community event or something of the like and go on calls. That's the st Those are still like the two things that I think uh, mean the most to me and, and drive me the most because I feel like I have a talent or a gift um, to give somebody in their time of need. Joe Mike Greg Warms are the fire chief in Lynchburg. And this really could be a two part episode here, Greg. We have about 30 minutes to record. And there's so many questions that, uh, that keep uh, popping up in my mind about your job. You mentioned training uh, a couple of minutes ago. Um, what are uh, prerequisites for individuals, uh, men or women, that want to get into? Uh, I'll say firefighting or whether it be full-time or volunteer at a department like CPR, et cetera, those types of things that are, you have to get this certification. What are those uh, for our listeners that might be interested or have somebody in their family or friend that uh, is interested in getting into your field? So there's a variety of ways that departments do this. I can say, for, you know, for Lynchburg, um, what's most important for people to understand is a, you don't have to come to us with any training. We'll provide you with whatever training you need. So we hire for attitude and train for skill. We're looking for um, the right person who has the ability and has an, a, a good attitude that is going to be engaged in the community. We can train you to do all of the other things that you need to do, start IVs and wear an air pack and pull hose and um, you know, work a stretcher, all of those things we can provide you. So the, the, the first thing is you don't have to have any experience to come to work here. Um, but then the second thing I think that's most important that I want people to, to, to know is that we're going to pay for all your training. Um, so uh, unlike many departments, we pay for everything. Um, we pay for all of your training from start to finish. Um, and uh, we're paying you your salary you know, all, all along. So you're going through a fire academy, you're learning the basics about firefighting, you're learning the basics about being an EMT um, and all of the other nuances that go with that. And then as you want to advance, um, as an example, if you want to be a paramedic, um, we're going to pay for you to go to paramedic school. We're going to pay for that. Um, that also makes you eligible for your first promotion. Uh, once you graduate paramedic school, not only have we paid that for you and made that investment in you, that's about a $20,000 investment. Um, but it allows you to be promoted um, to the next level of first line supervisor, which is which is really important to us. So we feel so, so, so what, what what we've created here is sort of this whole idea of you can come in as being a community centric person um, and we're going to train you to have all the gifts and things that you need in order to give back. 
um, all the while, we're going to compensate you for that so that you're not coming out of pocket for any of those expenses. Um, and all you got to do is show up and have a great attitude, smile, um, and treat, treat folks, treat folks well. Um, so we're really pr proud of that and what we built. And, you know, we, we hire every year, um, like many public service, um, departments, agencies, and work, uh, these days, uh, we have vacancies, you know, pr pretty regularly. A lot of them come from retirements. So our workforce um, ranges in age from somebody who just walked in the door at the age of 18 um, to somebody who uh, we still have working here who's a captain with us. And uh, that person's been here for 45 years as a firefighter, which is just amazing. Um, and so, you know, all the time, all those all all that time, we're also providing you all the tools that you need um, in order to be successful. So we're really, really proud of that. Um, I really want people to know that really you, you just have to have a great attitude. We'll take care of the rest. I mean, really, that is that is as simple um, as I can make it. Greg, you obviously graduated college in 95. You were promoted promoted to fire chief in 2018. So uh, that span there, uh, you were a captain, battalion chief, field battalion chief, all these different titles how many typically are there for somebody that starts that, okay, this is what I want to do. I know this is my calling. I eventually want to become a fire chief. How many different uh, levels and titles are there to get to where you are and where you were promoted in 2018? So there, there are several levels. I, I think I'd start off by saying, you know, we, we believe in everybody has value and everybody here is a leader in, in some context. Um, and, and we help all of our employees get there. So, um, you come in as a recruit, you know, come in as, as, as our city manager often calls it a baby firefighter, um, as a recruit. Uh, and then, uh, after you're here for a year, you move from, uh, recruit firefighter to firefighter. Um, and then, uh, depending on your track and your career path, um, depends on how long it takes you to move through the other steps. So, uh, we have a progression plan. Uh, we have a step pay plan so that, um, you know, consistently where you're going to be based on your certifications you know, throughout your entire career. So we try to be transparent um, and that way there's no guessing to that. Um, and so you're from a firefighter, you move to um, a driver, engineer, or a paramedic, depending on which track you want to be. Mm. Um, and then from those two positions, one of those two positions, you move to what's called a master firefighter. And that's somebody who's typically sort of the, the tenured firefighter in the station, who's the frontline supervisor, the immediate go-to guy. Like, you know, I can go to you know, master firefighter, Alan York and say, Hey, a Y like, I got this issue. Um, I need your help with this. And so that's that first line, uh, person in our staff. Then you have a station captain, uh, who's in charge of the entire work shift at that particular station. Then from there you have battalion chiefs, deputy chiefs, and then the fire chief. And there are, there are any number of dozens of ways to be involved in our department. You don't always have to ride a fire truck. You don't always have to work on an ambulance. You can be in the fire marshal's office doing inspections and investigations. You can be the health and safety officer. You can be in the training division. Um, so there are just so many ways for folks to be involved in our workforce um, and so many ways for, you know, somebody in the community um, to say, hey, I really don't like the firefighting part. But I like some of the other stuff that they do. We have a we have, you know, IT, um, an IT division. Obviously, we have uh, data analysts. We have a public information officer. So we have all sorts of other jobs um, that people can be involved in here uh, with us. 
Greg, I live out in Forest um, off of Everett Road and uh, Thomas Jefferson, and there's a great big fire station there, and we go by it daily, multiple times. And and my kids always love riding by there because they'll see the trucks and they'll see sometimes training going on. How often do firefighters train uh, for their real job, obviously, to serve the community? But the training during the year, how many times do they refresh in their skills, et cetera? So we, that, that's a lot. We could do a whole podcast just on all of the training. Um, so I'll try to sort of, in a nutshell, describe it in two ways. So we have recurring training, things that we are required to do every year um, as part of our certifications that we maintain. So depending on what your assignment is and what your certifications are, depends on how much of that training you need to get accomplished. Uh, so for paramedics, um, you know, you're talking about uh, every two years, you're talking about 100 hours of training. For firefighters, uh, which is all of our staff are, are comprised of firefighters and EMTs, um, you're talking uh, just in firefighting and EMT stuff about 100 hours. And then if you're a paramedic, you got another 100 hours on top of that. Um, so uh, you, we have that required training. We provide that to to our folks, to our staff um, in a number of different ways. We have a training center. Um, we have uh, simulation uh, software that we use. We have simulation mannequins that we use for, for our EMS folks and our EMS staff. Um, and I think the other the other thing that I think that's important to mention about the training outside the required training is that, you know, most people think that, uh, to your point, firefighters are just sort of sitting around waiting for the call to come in. When, in fact, when you drive by your your community fire station there in Forest, they're, they're training. We're doing the same thing. Firefighters spend a lot of their time training because um, that's what's going to keep us sharp. Uh, that's what's going to prevent um, a, a situation from happening. Uh, that could be catastrophic. And so, you know, for us, when we're conducting training, you know, in the morning, when we come in at 730, um, you know, we start work at 730 in the morning, we have a number of things that we have to go through. And then somewhere between, you know, 839 o'clock till about 11, all of our staff are doing training of some description. Hmm. So whether they're at the station doing something, sharpening some skills, or whether they go to the training center and do some something, do something, but that's every single day um bar none there's at least two hours of training being conducted because we got to get all those hours in and so again for paramedics you're talking about 200 you know 200 hours mm. you know or, or more of training that's required and that's hard and we can talk about the scheduling um because that's a whole nother whole nother issue when you really only work one every three days so that's mm. kind of a a cool thing about our job is we're only working one one every three days and you know 24 hours at a time. Right. And so that gives you a lot of time off, but you also have to condense all that training into yeah. that 24 hours. Two of my Greg Worms there also goes by Tex, the fire chief in Lynchburg. All right, Greg, you were sharing with me, uh, you're in charge of eight stations. Take us through again, another episode where we could talk all, all day about this call comes into nine one one. How does it get distributed to, okay, this station downtown needs to answer this call and again loaded question what's the cliff notes of call comes in the dispatcher goes to work and how does that get to your particular stations etc alan you and i probably are the only two people right now that know what cliff's notes are so most people probably wouldn't have any <laughs> um, <I know>. yeah <laughs> and there's no cliff notes answer to this i, I understand yeah. <laughs> 
<laughs> so, um, so yeah, when somebody calls 911, you know, at our dispatch center, um, everything is triaged just like you'd see on MASH or any other, in any other sort of, uh, televised show. Um, so calls are prioritized. Um, and there's all sorts of computer algorithms in the background that are built that sort of process all of that information instantaneously. Um, and so when the call comes in, the dispatcher takes that initial couple of questions to determine what to send. And we all we dispatch based on what's called AVL or automated vehicle locator. So we always dispatch the closest unit. And one of the things that we often see uh, in our line of work is people question us, well, why did the fire truck show up? when I really needed an ambulance and the ambulance came a few minutes later. Well, that's because the ambulance was probably on a call somewhere else or at the hospital or, or in some other location. Um, when in fact, in our, in our uh, department, we have paramedics that ride on all of our apparatus. So our job is to get you the, the, uh, the paramedic or the service that you need as fast as possible. And if that's on a fire truck, that's fine with us because, mm -hmm. because we want to be there quickly. And I'm proud to say, um, that in our department, uh, we can be at your house um, or at your business uh, with a paramedic um, or full response in less than six minutes from the time of call. That's pretty impressive. But I'll tell you, Alan, what's even more impressive that I think I'd like to work in here at this point um, is the fact that we have a return of circulation rate uh, in the city of Lynchburg um, greater than 50%. So what that means is if you're in cardiac arrest in the city of Lynchburg, you're not breathing, you don't have a pulse, you uh, have a greater than 50% chance of survival. Um, and that is nearly twice what the national average is. And we do that um, for a number of, or we're able to do that for a number of reasons. A, we've got a very quick response time. So we've got a great dispatch center um, who provides information, provides CPR instructions um, over the phone to the caller. Um, and then we have state-of-the-art equipment uh, and we have the most highly skilled, talented workforce, arguably, that you'd find anywhere else. And I'd say that to any of my colleagues around the state, um, but but we have an incredible workforce and use technology to our advantage. We do ultrasound. Um, we have automated compression devices. We have medications that are pre-mixed. Everything that we can do to, to make an outcome more positive. Hmm. Joe, my Greg Wormser, man, that, Greg, it's the first time I really talked to you, and I am so... Uh, encouraged of your service and uh, the response time of what y'all do in our community. I was thinking, I know in my house, in my neighborhood, there is a fire hydrant beside our house in front of our neighbor's house. How Take us through the process of how many houses down each hydrant services. Just kind of a, a funny, silly question, but it's a serious one that I, I look at it all the time. And I'm like, God forbid that we ever have to use it. But in a typical neighborhood, how many are there and how many, how spread out are they and how many houses would one fire hydrant service and how important are they? Well, you know, very important. And depending on where you live and in your locality, you may not have a fire hydrant near you. So there are plenty of places in central Virginia and beyond. Um, I'm sure you have listeners all over the place um, where they probably, you know, maybe even miles from a fire hydrant. But certainly in urban settings like we live in um, and, and where you live um, in the city of Lynchburg, we have a fire hydrant within 500 feet of any structure. Okay. So we have we have a pretty good water system here. The city of Lynchburg has a uh, water system that is the second oldest gravity fed system in the United States. 
Um, and so our water comes from, a, you know, a, a billion plus gallon reservoir in Amherst County, some 36 miles away from the city. And it's fed through a, uh, a three inch pipe down to the city. Uh, I'm sorry, not a three inch pipe, a three foot pipe. That'd be a small pipe, by the way. Uh, <laughs> um, but for us, you know, we have a fire hydrant um, in, in uh, within 500 feet of any structure. And that fire hydrant has to deliver at least 1500 gallons of water per minute. Um, so, and that, again, that varies by locality. There's plenty of rural areas, very nice areas. I used to live in a rural area before I moved to, moved into the city. Um, that aren't serviced by hydrants and they have to get water, uh, you know, in other ways through tankers that they carry, you know, they carry uh, water on the fire truck um, or uh, they have to pull from a stream, a pool or something, you know, a pond, something of the like. Uh, but where we live uh, within 500 feet and about 1500 gallons of water per minute at a minimum. Continuing on with uh, Lynchburg Fire Chief Greg Wormser also goes by Tex. I see in the background a great a green screen of some of your trucks or your fleet, we will call it, Greg. How often are trucks recycled, changed out? You get new toys to play with. Um, it, how often does that happen when it comes to the fleet? And how many trucks do you have with your eight stations? Yeah, so we have um, we have twelve ambulances in our eight state across our eight stations. We have uh, two lighter trucks, a heavy rescue, uh, eight fire trucks, and three supervisors. Those are some of our, our bigger complement uh, you know, of vehicles. Um, so basically our equipment, we, we have a great fleet services department for the city. And so we have a schedule for uh, preventative maintenance and for other things that need to go on with all of our apparatus. We're required to have them DOT checked every week. We're required to do pump testing, ladder testing, all of these other things. Um, but basically uh, for our ambulance, uh, we intend to keep an ambulance about five years. Um, and then either rechassis it, uh, so we take the box off and put it on a new chassis, um, if, if that's possible, or it just goes out the door, we sell it used uh, to another department, and then we get something else new. For fire trucks, um, they're about 15 years. Uh, we, we intend to get about 15 years worth of work out of them. Typically, about 10 years of that is on what we call the front line or sort of a you know the initial uh, out-the-door piece of equipment, and then three to five years is as a reserve piece. So when something is broken down, when something's getting preventative maintenance, um, we always have these backup vehicles uh, that we use uh, in those types of situations. And so that that's usually a three to five year time span. The other thing that happens uh, is that when those vehicles are here uh, in reserve is what we call them, uh, they're, they're capable of being used at other events. So oftentimes we're using those at events at Liberty University, we're using them at other community events, we're using them at events at University of Lynchburg, at Randolph College, um, and, and the like all across the city. Greg, how do you know when a call comes in which truck to send? Like the one we're seeing here on the on the podcast is with the big ladder and the bucket lift. How do you know which one to send to a particular call? Yeah, so all that's built into the system at the dispatch center. So uh, when the call comes in, that initial two questions the dispatcher asks you um, or what's critically important for what we are going to send to your situation. So the first question is, what's the nature of your emergency? Um, so they, th that in those few words, uh, they can identify, put into the system, you know, what the nature of the emergency is. And that tell the computer then tells the dispatcher what to send. Um, and then secondly, um, is where you're calling from. So they always verify that. Um, even though uh, with technology today, 
you know, typically they, they know exactly where you're calling from. They do like to verify that, you know, technology is only as good as, as the people that have programmed it. And so we want to make sure that we're sending you uh, the right equipment based on what your location is and based on what your initial need is. And so from there, they ask a series of questions that, that help refine that. But those initial units out the door are usually within about a minute. Joined by Lynchburg Fire Chief Greg Warmser. All right, you have eight stations in Lynchburg, Greg. There's also volunteer fire departments you might see out in the more uh, uh, rural areas, I guess we'll call it. Uh, how does it work in conjunction across county lines? Hey, we need more help. Uh, how does that happen typically? Yeah, we have a great partnership with our county agencies um, in Amherst, Bedford, and Campbell specifically that are right on our borders. Um, and so uh, we're very proud of that partnership. So uh, FEMA um, and the National Incident Management System requires uh, departments and agencies like ours to have what's called mutual aid agreements with partner agencies. So that way, if you if any one agency is inundated with calls or has a significant incident, um, that they can call on their partner agency um, in order to provide some relief. Um, and, and we cross borders all the time. You know, our our um, you know our whole thing is that we want to help somebody. So it really doesn't matter what color your truck is. Really doesn't matter what the name of your truck says. Um, what matters is can we get you the help that you need? And so you know, oftentimes in the city, we have our county partners uh, coming in uh, to the city when we have you know large responses inundated with calls. Um, you know, in the city of Lynchburg, as an example, we run more than 19,000 calls a year. Um, and so we can get and we are very busy. Um, and so um, our partner agencies in the counties don't run as nearly as many calls. And so we, we definitely rely on them uh, to come in and help us out on occasion. And the reverse is true. You know, they they often can be inundated very quickly. Um, and so we will often go assist them uh, as well uh, in the counties. Why do you think, uh, Greg, and I'm thinking of the little kids that just love to see the fire trucks or the fire station, uh, what is it about the industry in your career um, makes brings smiles to kids' faces when they get to put the fire hat on or, or climb up on the truck? It's really cool to see uh, you connect with the community, but wh what do you think it is about that makes the little kids feel good when they see the fireman or the firewomen or, or whomever uh, come by with their fire truck? You know, I think for us, it's about the red lights. Um, it's about the size of the vehicle. You know, frankly, I think if we drove a, a Caterpillar uh, front end loader uh, to the elementary school, they'd be just as happy with that. Um, and uh, they're not as cool or, or they don't think it's as cool seeing a police car. Because it looks like mom and dad's car, really. I mean, other than other than maybe the paint job or or maybe yeah. the few lights that it has on it. But I think when they see this massive vehicle, um, I think that matters, and I think that that's what that that's the draw. But again, I think if we were a Caterpillar front end loader or a large dump truck, it'd probably be a similar draw because it's something that they um, they're not used to. They're not used to seeing that in a driveway every day. It doesn't look like a regular car. Um, and I remember those days. I mean, they're, they're, I can't tell you what I had for lunch yesterday, but I can remember back to elementary school, you know, a firefighter showing up at my school. And it was just cool to see the gear. You know, you can hold axes and spray water and, and do all of this stuff. Um, and yet that's really a fraction of what we do every day. You know, 80% uh, of what we do every day, 85% of what we do every day is running EMS calls and 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 helping helping somebody, you know, in their time of need. It's It's 
you know, rare or it's it's not common as common to go to a house fire, to go to a car accident, to to do, go to some sort of rescue. They happen for sure. Um, but it's really the ability to, to help others. So, you know, kids these days like to ride on our stretcher, frankly, because our stretchers are automated. And so they like to get up on the stretcher and ride the stretcher up and down, get in the back of the ambulance and that sort of thing. So um, I think it's just the draw of the size of the vehicle. Wrapping things up, the Greg Warms or the Lynchburg fire chief. What, as I think back through this interview, Greg, I see the fire trucks and it, the, the tried and true service of what y'all do. Um, there's technology advances, but Hey, we show up, we serve, we, we do what we do. Um, how much has technology changed firefighting or responding to calls? And it, it seems like, um, uh, just the outside looking in it, it, it really has, it. you show up with your trucks, you serve and you save people. But technology, what's the future of what you do and what um, would uh, listeners like to know about the technology of fighting a fire? Or is it just the old school tried true methods of what has happened for decades? Yeah, so so fire is a science. Um, so and, and the way fire behaves is a science. And, it's, you know, probably one of the things that interested me about it is because I'm a scientist by trade. I mean, that's what my undergraduate degree was in. So. Fire is a science, and and you're correct in that the fire trucks that show up when when the average citizen sees us show up, it looks the same largely as it did, um, you know, 15 years ago, five years ago, 30 years ago. What's changed is the way the fire trucks are built, um, and and the safety features that are in there, and the way the equipment that we use is built, and the safety features that are there. So, um, you know. You're, we have a cancer problem in the fire service because of all the things that we're exposed to. Um, and so, you know, as an example, our turnout gear, the gear that we wear to go into a fire is made much differently today uh, than it was when I started, you know, 28 years ago. Um, so much so that you can go much farther, much deeper into a fire or into a building um, and get much closer to a fire because there's so much, you're wearing so much protective gear. And that, that, has to, that is technology. Mm -hmm. That is the way that we have advanced. We have new air packs coming out um, at the first of the year with new face pieces that we wear. Those are also very technology advanced in that um, when, we're in, when our firefighters are in a fire, we're able to monitor them from our computers um, at the command post. Mm -hmm. And so we can monitor their air. We can monitor their location. Um, and we can do a number of other things in the future um, to keep our firefighters uh, safe uh, and to keep them healthy, know when they're in trouble, maybe even long before they know. Um, so those are some of the ways that that technology has advanced. You know, we also use thermal imaging cameras to detect fire, to detect hot spots. Um, and those thermal imaging cameras are vastly different. You know, they used to be um, you know, about half the size of a microwave. And so you're, you know, pulling this thing around with you um, and it had a terrible screen. You couldn't really see much. Um, and nowadays um, it's a little bit bigger. Uh, it's, it's a little bit bigger than a large coffee mug. Um, mm. And it has an incredible computer screen, high definition. Um, and you can see so many things uh, using, using that technology. And that's a whole nother like, uh, uh, a podcast in yeah. and of itself. We could do podcasts for days, Alan. 
Hey, I, I'm looking for more content, Greg. Um, so any anytime you're available, I, I'd love to continue on. One, final thought here. When it comes to uh, uh, people in the community, they're in their cars, they see trucks coming behind them with the lights. Uh, what do you tell those people that, okay, I think I can get through where I'm going without, you know, having the truck come up on me. Um, and for those people at home going on vacation, uh, what are some of those tried and true, okay, tips of, okay, you need to do this before you go on vacation. So we don't have to have a call to your house, but kind of start with, okay, you see the fire truck coming behind you, please get over. I, I don't think that you guys can stress that enough because you have somewhere you need to get, um, and, and how important is that for those in cars that see y'all coming to kindly get out of the way when you can. And, and some of those tips around the house of like, this is what I would do if I go on a vacation, et cetera. Yeah. Great questions. Um, so you know, the first thing is, um, you know, when, when we're traveling, when we're in a car, um, we want you to get over. So pull to the right. So, um, you know, the rule has always been, um, always pull to the right and stop. It's not pull to the right and slow down. It's not pull to the right and sort of keep going. It's pull to the right and stop. If you stop in the middle of the road, it's it's difficult for us to navigate because everybody else is going to stop in the middle of the road. Mm -hmm. But but to your point, you know, get over as quickly as possible and safely um, because uh, emergency vehicles are always supposed to pass on the left. Um, and so th they should never be on the right, which is why we always tell people to pull to the right uh, when able and come to a complete stop. Um, we get into jams and, and get into situations where people will stop right where they're at. And that's helpful, except when everybody does the same thing. And then we've just sort of gummed up the works. So that's that's the most important thing. You see something, um, just go, uh, just pull to the right um, and come to a complete stop. You know, you second part of your question. Um, th th there's a number of things that I do when I leave my home. Uh, whether it's on vacation or just for the evening um, that we want to remind people. So cooking fires are the number one cause of, of fires um, in the United States. And a lot of that is attributed to uh, people who are multitasking, uh, people who are very busy in their lives and maybe fall asleep while they're cooking or get distracted by kids or, or, or any, of the, uh, any, any of these things. So always check your stove and oven, make sure it's off. Um, always make sure there's nothing in uh, your microwave and that it, it is also off. Make sure nothing's on your stove and it's completely clear. Um, some of the other things that we like to remind people is uh, make sure your doors are closed. So even interior doors, they are a fire barrier. So whether you're in the home or out of the home, um, when you're not in a room, uh, you should close your doors. That also makes your home a little more energy efficient. Um, so that, that that's another, another helpful tip. Um, finally, we remind folks to never have anything within three feet of any commercial heating device. Mm -hmm. So whether you're using a kerosene heater, a fireplace of any description, or a furnace of any description, never have anything combustible within three feet of that heating device. And, and those tips alone, you know, certainly would take care of the majority of the fires um, that we see um, th that we see in, in our region for sure. Greg Warmser, Tex, the Lynchburg Fire Chief, uh, episode 14 of our Hill City Highlights podcast. Greg, learned so much. Thank you for your time. Uh, look forward to having you back on here soon and to have a good holiday season, okay? Thanks, you too, Alan. Take care.
Thanks for listening to this episode of the Hill City Highlights podcast. Have an idea for future shows? Email our team at hillcitypod at gmail.com. And join us each week for another episode of the Hill City Highlights podcast.